My guest today is Alfie Marsh. Alfie is the US go-to-market, the head of US go-to-market for Spendesk. Here's a few things that some of his colleagues say about him. Clearly a master of his craft, Alfie was able to offer a deeper understanding of the mechanics of a successfully functioning outbound sales team and helped me dissect some of the initial challenges we face. Alfie has a rare combination of up-to-date technical skills, ability to understand your strategic goals, and a teacher's patience to pass those skills on. In my eight years of managing customer-facing teams, I've seen that good sales leaders have two of those, but the ones that actually move the needle have all three. Not to mention the fact he's just a really likeable person and a pleasure to work with. Alfie is an incredibly passionate person and his energy lifts the team. His knowledge of markets and finance gave us precious insights. He is an outstanding and gifted individual. He has very strong commercial nose that leads him to deliver insight into many business problems. He has unbounded energy and enthusiasm and ability. Alfie Marsh, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you. What, a, what an introduction. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it was easy. I just picked them out on LinkedIn. <laughs> I, I, and, and I did edit it down because there's so much more, but we did, we did take up half the show with it. So uh, kudos to you. So tell me, Alfie, uh, tell me, I know you're from England. Tell me where you grew up and what was that like, what part of England? Yeah. Um, so I'm from London, North London to be specific. Uh, I grew up in a place called Enfield, um, which is kind of like the last place you can go inside London without being outside of the M25, uh, very close to Tottenham. Uh, if anyone I was going to I was going to ask you Tottenham <laughs> or Arsenal. Well, so I'm one of those rare uh, Englishmen that doesn't really watch or care much about football at all okay. <laughs> my sport my, my sport of choice is uh, mixed martial arts and uh, I watch Ooh. the UFC a lot and that's that's kind of like my thing but if I had to choose one uh, it would be Tottenham because uh, if you go to any pub inside uh, of Enfield uh, it's a, always a Tottenham pub and uh, so the majority of my friends where I grew up is uh, is Tottenham I, <laughs> I tried to get into football once at university with my friends saying if you want to get into it, you have to have skin in the game. And so I remember right. we always used to do these accumulators, put one pound on an accumulator, and then that kind of got me into football for a couple of years, and uh, it kind of faded away a little bit after that. Very good. Well, you, 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 you chose the right one. That's all I'll say. And uh, so what, what was it like? Tell me a little about growing up in that part of London as a, as a young guy. Yeah. Um, what to say? I guess... Um, I mean, I haven't actually been back to Enfield properly um, for, I mean, many, many years now. It's, it's going to be probably over like a decade almost. Um, you know, pre-university was any time I actually spent a significant amount of time there. I mean, Enfield is great. Um, you know, it's kind of like suburban uh, London. Um, there was, I always felt that uh, living up in that part of London, um, there's a lot of people maybe less kind of ambitious, less wanting to go outside of Enfield. I always used to have this sentiment anyway um, of wanting to get outside of Enfield, of wanting to kind of see the world and go to other places. Cool. And, um, you know, I think I took that pretty much in my stride, you know, post-university and uh, I haven't really looked looked back since. But, um, you know, it was a great place to go up. Um, it taught me a lot. I, 
lot of my formative years were in Enfield where mainly Ooh. kind of around uh, hard work. I started working at quite a young age. I mean, my, my first job when I was 12 years old doing a paper round in my, my local area and uh, I kind of just got hooked on, on hard work. So I Ooh. learned the ethics of hard work uh, in Enfield and then I kind of moved out of there post-university and, uh, and yeah, haven't really looked back. And when you think back to your time there, was there a significant individual, could have been a family member or a teacher, who had a, a, a big influence on you? Um, so so when, I guess, yeah, there was, there was one uh, work experience that was quite um, transformative, I guess. So after I started doing my paper round, I remember getting the first £5 note I ever earned for doing some work. And uh, I remember holding that £5 note in my hand uh, it just felt like the, I just felt like the richest man in the world. Um, and I, it's just there's something about that first piece of money that you earn on your own skin. You know, there was no pocket money. Uh, it was just pure hard work. Um, and I remember that and I just had the kind of bug for that. Um, and it was about six months after I started that paper round. Uh, there was a shop across the road from where I lived and it was a music centre. It's called North London Music Centre. <laughs> Pretty uh, standard name. Um, and they just opened up and they were looking for a Saturday person to work in the shop. Ooh. And I was just turning 13 at the time. So I was, I don't know exactly, looking back, I'm not exactly sure what the labour laws <laughs> were because I was quite young. But I managed Ooh. to swindle getting a job in this music shop. Uh, Every Saturday, I got £40 for every Saturday's work. And I was there for about, I don't know, three years. So, you know, mm. 13 to 16 is quite a transformational period of your of your life. And I spent mm. all my weekends, you know, working. Um, and there was a guy who owned the shop called James Cockle. And he taught me a lot about business. Uh, he taught me a lot about uh, selling. Uh, I was, although I was in the shop and be, as a Saturday boy, I mean, we, we did two things. They had music lessons going on. That was kind of like a core cash flow part of the business, but we also then sold musical instruments. And I was play either, I was, I was in heaven because I was playing guitar basically all day long to people <laughs> and then selling stuff. And we used to have these like internal competitions and how many instruments to sell. And that's kind of where I really got the bug. You know, I was only 13 years old, but I was speaking to adults, selling to adults. And I just realized that it was, you know, completely possible. Um, I think that was a, a period of time for me where I just realized you know, hard work, uh, putting yourself out there and learning uh, made things possible. And I, saving up money. I remember saving up 500 pounds and I bought my first own guitar. And again, you know, I was like as a young teenager. That was a hell of a lot of money to me back then. Ooh. I just had this incredible pride in, in kind of doing it for myself. And I think, you know, over my career, that sort of... Um, mentality has just really stayed with me of kind of, you know, earning, earning my way through, through hard work and curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds to me when you talk about hard work, that hard work also can be fun that you enjoyed your time there. Well, that, okay. That's a, it's a great point. I think, you know, there's the, um, the way I think it's where, when work is play is, is really when you kind of come into your, uh, come into your own. And that was something that clearly resonated with me there. And I think actually throughout my career, kind of going in, in and out, you know, troughs and peaks of, of doing things that are actually really aligned with what I feel, feel like playing really enjoy versus what I'm prioritizing as something because I'm putting this career or this job role on a pedestal and that's what I think I want. Um, and you know, that music shop experience was exactly that, you know, work was play. I, I loved every second of it. Um, and that's what made it, it didn't, it didn't feel like work at all. Uh, during that period oh. of time. And I think, yeah, I, I definitely tried to 
take that now, especially the older I get in my career where I'm, you know, realizing you know, your career is for the long run and you want to be really aligned with uh, your, you know, values, what interests you, what you're good at and what you find as play. Mm. And then you went to Birmingham University. I did. I did. The good old Peaky Blinders. I, you did. And you did accounting and finance. I did indeed. I did indeed. That's a long way from selling guitars in North London. <laughs> So it, it is. Um, so I, what's my reasoning for choosing accounting and finance? So I think I, when I was about uh, 17, 16, 17, I had a girlfriend whose dad was actually from Sheffield, so a bit more uh, up north than from, from London. Um, but he was a stockbroker. And that kind of got me into the, um, the world of finance. And I kind of just got into this uh, headspace where if I want to be successful, uh, I want to make money, I have to go into finance. And I guess I'm trying Ooh. to think actually, how old was I? This is around, around 2007, 2008, when the, you know, the financial crisis. It's quite a funny period of time because for people of my generation, I think you see, you saw a lot of stuff in the news of all these bankers making a lot of money. And obviously the news like press was negative per se. Um, yeah. But it kind of opened your eyes. It's like, wow, there's that much money in this industry. Um, and so I, I thought, right, okay, I've got to go into finance if I want to be successful and make money. And that's kind of what I put myself to. Uh, so I studied accounting and finance. Um, I was actually rejected from most of the universities because I actually applied to do economics, but I didn't study maths. So they were like, if you didn't do maths, you can't do economics, but you could do accounting and finance, which I thought was hilarious. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and then that's kind of led me to my first job at, uh, at Bloomberg, which was in, you know, in, in finance. And I think that was, you know, that is an example of uh, like a failure um, because I'm really trying to uh, shape my, you know, reality, shape the world to my perspective of reality, which is that's the career for success. And that's what I should be doing uh, when it wasn't actually aligned really at all with uh, what interests me, to be honest. And so yeah. uh, <laughs> that's kind of where my career changed a lot. So I want to talk about that for a little bit, if you don't mind, this whole idea, because people will will often chase what is their perception of success. And because they've had no experience of it, it looks it looks great from the outside. It looks like, you know, all suits and expensive dinners. And, and uh, I'm... I want to kind of talk to you a little bit about what's that like to go through that realization that that's that that be careful what you wish for that's the yeah. theme i guess that it's not always what we think it is and there and talk to me about the realization when when when, when it dawned on you that you you you're, you need to get back on a different path so i had a very um a, a very trans probably the most transformative experience in my kind of in adult life was going through Bloomberg and then quitting and then going in moving to France and going to spend there so we can go into that in you know more detail Ooh. in short I spent about three years at Bloomberg um, and for people that don't know Bloomberg it's a, a large kind of financial corporation they have financial news but they also sell financial technology to banks and hedge funds and these sorts of things and, and I effectively went into the sales and analytics program which is basically you learn all the you know the hard complicated financial stuff but you're mainly going there for sales and like account management and so that's kind of how I got it into my career in finance through like the sales route um, 
you know, and I was there for three years, um, and it was it was it was a really great time. I learned a lot. So intellectually, I was very stimulated. I do really enjoy finance. I'm still into that and trading and do stuff really in my mm. spare time now. So that was kind of like a lot of alignment there. But fundamentally, I was there for the wrong reason. So I was there for one thing: get promoted, get a pay rise, really try and get into like banking and, and the hedge funds. Because the funny thing about what I was saying with the you know the financial crisis, you see, you know, this money. It was actually the worst time to try and go into that industry because it's actually all of the so many applicants because so many people want to go there in a declining Ooh. industry so actually people yeah. are getting literally hundreds of thousands of people are being laid off made redundant you know weekly uh, in all of <laughs> these banks and uh, and things like that um so it's really competitive so it's almost impossible to actually get a job in any of those places and the environment was just not not that great but at bloomberg i had a great time for for you know two and a half out of those three years i got promoted several times had multiple pay rises i was learning a lot i was you know really hungry and ambitious but it all kind of came to a head about six months before I actually left uh, and I actually went through a phase of burnout uh, and I was signed off uh, from work uh, I was not going to work for a couple of months before I actually left the company uh, and that was a, a really uh, intense period of my life because I was quite young I was you know about 20 23 going on 24 um, and so for me I mean I was earning a lot of money for someone that age um, I felt very comfortable in my life, you know, kind of like from what I was earning. So I should have been really happy, but I was actually in like one of the lowest places. Um, and effectively what happened, you know, I was in a, in a position, uh, we had kind of three departments. They basically merged them into one, made about a third of the people redundant. Uh, and then, so, you know, our job kind of completely changed overnight. My client base changed. Uh, I was like a duck out of water in this, uh, in this period of time. And I basically realized in this moment, when things were going well, and so when it was easy for me, I loved it because it paid, promoted, it was going well and things. Right. But when, uh, you know, I don't know if we can swear on this podcast, yeah. but <laughs> when, if it's X, bad, I can always leave it out. when X hits the fan, <laughs> uh, you know, you that's shit. When shit the fan. <laughs> you said it, not me. <laughs> so when that hits the fan, um, you know, that's really when the test is. And, you know, when yeah. it got, when the going got tough, I didn't like it. And so I, I didn't like it for the right reasons because I think there's um, Nietzsche's phrase is you can withstand uh, any, uh, any how if you have your why. Mm. And that really resonated with me because I didn't have the right why, so I couldn't withstand any how. And I mean, mm. you know, fast forward, you know, a few years later to what I'm doing at Spenners, I can guarantee you I'm working 10 times harder. I've you know, really grinded, put in the hours, um, you know, full steam for, for four years mm. straight, for, uh, you know, and I don't feel close to how I did then. And that's because the, the purpose and the meaning and, and the why behind it is very different. And so, you know, long story short, that kind of took me through this journey. Uh, at the time, you know, I felt embarrassed by it. I was like, I'm, you know, 23, 24, having burnout. I was like, that's what you do when you're at the end of your career and you're kind of, you know, having a midlife crisis. What am I doing? Am I, am I you know, a loser? Uh, what's wrong with me? You know, and I didn't really have any kind of concept of mental health or anything at that point. And so, that was a great lesson to have really early on. And that kind of, you know, violently realigned me onto this path of uh, doing things that are in line with you, going back to that, you know, when work is play um, and having the right purpose. And, you know, ever since then, I've not looked back. Is that what led you on to resident, the sales site community? No, that kind of came much later, actually. That came really through my, um, you know, work at Spendesk. And um, so that's oh. that. So. Uh, that's a, a community, sales community um, which has um, 
it's a great guy called Chris. I have to introduce him. Maybe you've heard him on your podcast in, in the past. If you haven't, we'll have to bring him on. Um, but it's really a, a community for salespeople. But the thing I love about Chris is, again, there's a lot of uh, focus around you know mental health within the sales mm. industry. Um, there's a lot of, obviously, in sales, quota carrying, there's a lot of short-term stress, there's a lot of pressure, and there's a lot of bad management across the board. Mm. Um, and I think that you know, it's rife with mental health problems um, and there's no one really addressing it. I think there's still kind of those remnants of the, you know, the old boys club kind of sales culture in some of these companies. And um, oh. I just love what he's doing to that space and bringing awareness. And, uh, it, you know, it's not just about mental health in sales. It's, you know, all, all about sales and, and being better. But there's a, a certain, uh, you know, focus and awareness on that. So, you know, he asked me to get involved and, and help him out with some of the, uh, you know, the content and the webinars and be a resident there and uh, oh. suggest it's absolutely great. But you must share your story as part of that to help people feel okay with the fact that you can, at any age, experience burnout if you're not paying attention. Absolutely. It took me. It took me a while to kind of feel comfortable actually sharing that story, um, uh, because of just the associations that, that the interpretation that I had in my own head about it. But actually, you know, I think uh, it is really important. And I think since sharing that, I've had so many yeah. people reach out to me that have had similar experiences, which was quite surprising. I'd like to just spend a little bit of time on this, if you don't mind, because it's the one thing, you know, we all know that men, when it comes to burnout, when it comes to suicide, when it comes to depression, um, we're our own worst enemy at times. I mean, we, you know, the, the, the stats are not in our favor. Hmm. And it's always the same. The men don't confront it because of this. There's this stigma attached to it. Yeah. And I wanted to understand what it is, where the stigma comes from, and then also what it's like, what it feels like when you confront it and be vulnerable and talk about it. Maybe you could share that part of the story with me, if you don't mind. Yeah, where, I mean, where, where does it come from? I think going, th going through the process myself of, of having that, um, I think it's tough because everyone has you know mental health but i think everyone thinks that they they that they should like they shouldn't have any like mental health problems and i think there's this kind of like thought that you know having mental health problems means you're mentally ill uh, and it's oh. like you know there is you know it, mental health there are legitimate mental health illnesses but you know i always refer it back to more like physical health like oh. you can be physically fit or physically unfit but you're not necessarily necessarily physically you have a malady you know you might oh. have there is obviously you know that in that comes into it but everyone has fit, you know, physical fitness and it goes in peaks and troughs you have good days you have bad days you eat really well one week you don't the other you exercise go through three weeks of exercise and then you kind of lay off and eat pizza all the time and, and it's the same thing with your your mental health uh, but i think because we have this kind of stigma of like just seeing it as black and white like you either you're fine or you have mental issues and it's got this stigma of of, of you know you know illness and there's something wrong with me and i think that's what we need to get rid of and you know mm. we, that's just the case we are all on the spectrum and we're all fluctuating and we need to be more self-aware of when that actually happens and also have the means to be able to self-regulate on on a day-to-day on a -day and week-to-week -week basis i mean mm. I, I feel like that whole process made me really self-aware um i know when I'm going through like a, a down spot because there's certain there's certain signs that are kind of like leading indicators. Um, but eating badly, you know, not exercising, not being as sociable, um, 
I, you know, now I've taken up meditation for a number of years now, and it's, it's an absolute game changer. That feeling of kind of like always being wired and always being on. Um, and I think when I get to that kind of like, oh, I'm going through that kind of trough phase, I do a self audit and say, what does my life look right now? Mm. And it's, oh, there's a bit of a correlation. I've been eating sugar a lot recently and I've been eating really fatty yeah. foods and I'm not exercising, I'm more sedentary. And then I'm like, okay, so I go through a three week cleanse and uh, you know, kick my butt into action. I get on a run and I, you know, it's, not a, it's not the day after you're gonna feel better, but you know, when you do that consistently over a couple of weeks, you're like, oh, I can start seeing the, the changes. And it's, it's really about self regulation in the long run yeah I, I think there's two sides to this i just listening to you as well there's the there's what we're talking about right now is the to to use your analogy is that if you stay physically fit you're much better positioned to fight off viruses when they come along yes and if you're physically fit good diet when the challenges that come along that challenge our sense of self that challenges our resilience that we're in a better position to deal with them. So that's one side of it. And I, the other side of it is our comfort level, we're talking about it when, it, when the virus does get hold and yes. does take over and you're not able to get out of bed because it's, it's, not a, it's, it's, it's not a physical virus, although it can probably feel that way. Uh, and I do think there's huge pressure on men, always has been to be strong in fact, mm. society rewards men for being strong. Strong, strong comes with that sense of stoicism, which can, some people will call it when it's when it goes too far, it can become toxic because it actually in, infects you. Well, that's the to me the toxic bit of it is where it actually lays you low. But nobody, I, I don't see anybody doing anything about the pressure on men to be always strong, and therefore. If that pressure continues to exist, it's very difficult to admit because that really undermines how you see yourself when you've got to admit to not always being strong. And I, I don't know we talk about that enough. I think it's like men's issues, they're, 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 they're not relevant. Uh, mm. That's the way, I don't know. I'd be curious to know your own thoughts on it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, definitely, um, I definitely see that. And I think that, I think, the underlying current of that is changing in the generations that are coming uh, in you know what it means to be a man in the modern day society i think that's obviously a, a slower change um but you know to that point about being strong i think you know generally um that is absolutely true and you know it's i always wonder what's the what's the right way to approach it you know should we try and uh, promote that kind of like vulnerability as, a, as a, an antithesis to strength or well, actually no you promote that as the strength. So I think I think men want to be strong. I don't think men don't mm. want to be strong. I think they do. So it's not just an external pressure, but I think it's men's internal dialogue as to what strength mm. means. And I think <clears throat> if we change the dialogue and uh, allow vulnerability, empathy, sharing emotions as strength, and that becomes mm. the pillar and foundation of strength, yeah, men will be showing it left, right and centre because it will be something they want to do. And I think that's kind of in an easier way to kind of reframe it if you're, you're flipping this back. Yeah, to no, I, 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 I fully believe that vulnerability is strength. And I think historically, and you're absolutely right, I think it's changing, is that we now have the language to describe it. Where yeah. before we didn't have the language to describe how we feel. And when you don't have the language then you can't communicate about it. You can't be vulnerable because you can't express it. Exactly. Um, 
I mean, take take yeah. uh, take for example, just leadership today. I mean, the, how uh, awareness around good leadership and coaching and what that actually means. And I think a, a huge part of that is actually adapting yourself to your audience and understanding who your audience is, knowing what motivates them, what gets them you know pumped, what demotivates them. Understanding how to communicate to one person is very different or get a very different result to communicating with someone else. But what's at the heart of all that? It's, it's really empathy and it's really understanding someone else. So to do that, you kind of have to start with being self-aware this kind of old school style of management of being very directive without support and without kind of uh, tailoring that message to the person that's receiving it i think that's kind of like of a, a different generation or it, sh- it should be at least mm. anyway um and yeah. so the i think we are starting to see just the natural traits becoming more uh, important in every day in the workplace anyway and so people that exhibit those and are more uh free to kind of express those you know i think that is um that mm. they're going to do better so how has your perception then on leadership changed over the last uh, two, three years? Yeah. Um, how has it changed? That's a, that's a good question. I'm trying to think what was my perception of leadership a few years ago. I'm not, I'm not sure I had a very well sort of formed uh, perception. Cool. I think, I mean, there was a, a period where I went through from being an individual contributor uh, and becoming a first-time sales manager. And that was a really interesting period for me because most of my life was really spent on like work hard you know grind it out put the effort in and just be the best at whatever you do so I've kind of always wanted to just be the best and I'm quite competitive in that sense and so naturally when you're performing well as an IC you kind of think well you the best way to be a manager is to get everyone performing at your best level when you've got all the secrets of the trade so you just need to tell them what they are and then they'll perform (laughs) and it's kind of like you know uh, you know just kind of effectively sales leading by trying to do that through osmosis (laughs) it obviously doesn't work you know you know in hindsight um but that was kind of like my my first foray into leadership and that was the biggest mistake is just kind of if i just explain to you and show you uh, the way that it's worked for me uh, and i know it's worked that's proof then you should be able to do that otherwise you're not working hard enough or you're doing something wrong and that was kind of funny though we also have that exact same instinct when it comes to selling that when we go and call on prospective customers we show up, we talk about, here's, I know how it works, here's how it works, and that people should get it as well. And yeah. that we keep, and what, what baffles me, although it's easy in hindsight to look at it, what baffles me is how we, even though we know all the answers, I mean, how many books have been written on leadership, on, on, on um, what's the term I'm looking for, uh, um, it's when, when it's not supportive leadership. There's a there's a term for it. Conscious um, leadership. It's consciously is one of them, and there's another one as well. But it's that yeah. that sense of self awareness and thinking about you know the message and how you're going to communicate it and being supportive. All of those things that that you're talking about. That it's exactly the same in sales as well. That how we communicate it, how we connect with other people. That we our instinct seems to be, you sit there. Let me tell you how it's done, or let me show you how it works. It's, um, and, but, but yet the tools are there, and we still, still, it's almost like it's almost like we're we're not doomed is too strong a word, but we're compelled almost to have to learn the lesson the hard way every time. I think the the the, the key way to describe the difference in in for me anyway was um, I thought that delivering the right message was where you know, the 
not where the effort necessarily stopped, but kind of like where it stopped for me. It was like, if I've given the right message, it's up to everybody else to kind of interpret it in the right way. <laughs> and, mm. and that's, I think, the big change. It's like, no, it's not just about the right message. It's the right message at the right time to the right person in the right way. And actually, it's my responsibility to make sure that the person on the other end has understood and taken it in in the in the in the correct manner and so that's Ooh. where my leadership so i think changed because i had to focus on adapting my personality to the people that are in front of me and the same thing in sales you see it all the time with sales demonstrations as being like a, a key example people just talk at customers and they just present the product and there's there's no uh conversation there's no way of uh helping understand if the customers understood that and you know we i love the these um ways of doing demos where you're actually including that person for me a demonstration is really about uh taking the customer or the prospect on a journey through visualizing the before and the after transformation that it would go uh, with your product and so for me that's not presenting because that's not a transformation mm -hmm. it's really helping them say okay so what was this really process like for you before and how could it be and then getting you there and so when i for example whenever we present something you know explain to me how would you actually take this and implement it in the company how would you use this feature who would use it what people in the team um you know what we, we sell spend management software it's like what, what what things would your team buy with this card and it's at that moment you know, that you engage that person and then they are now visualizing themselves and you're also able to understand you know is this something Ooh. that they've understood well a, a question that we always finish our demonstrations on are uh if now that you've seen Spendesk for the first time, how would you describe this to someone that's never seen or heard of it before? Love that question. This, this it was a, been a game changer because it, it's it's fantastic because there's a few things that happen. Firstly, they they engage themselves, so they become active. The, the second is that they are now pitching your product back to you in their own words. So they're selling your product to themselves. And because it's the last thing that they do on the call, it's one of the last things they remember. And that's like the most powerful image. Um, it's a re-cementing everything. And the third thing, if they've not understood anything or they weren't convinced or anything, or they sucked at pitching what your product is, you can now correct it in, in real time. And now you have an understanding of where that gap's been. Um, I mean, so the, these these things, yeah, understanding how something is being received is just, if not more important than actually delivering the right message. Yeah, no, I actually, I love, love, love that question. For me, demos are part of the discovery process when they're done right. They, and I like, I like your term, they're, they're used to visualize the before and after, yeah, closing that gap. Um, but the question at the end is is genius. It's It's, yeah. I can see other people now stealing that. Well, <laughs> if they're not stealing it, you've offered it and it's recorded. Absolutely. <laughs> so you have offered please, it to the universe. Please feel free. Um, I, I've shared yeah, it before. Yeah, now. I love it. So tell me what you do then to stay focused. Because you said you're working hard, you're doing, you know, lots of hours. And, and that's hard. It's easy to get distracted. It's actually, I think it's hard to stay focused, particularly in the role that I'm doing at the moment, because my role is so diverse at the moment. You know? oh. But when I first started in Spendesk, I was I was hired as the, uh, back in, there was 20 people in the company, I was the first native English speaker and, and really to help, um, you know, launch and, and grow the UK market. So I was kind of very focused. I had kind of, you know, one uh, kind of focus I was doing. It was very much, you know, the out, build the outbound sales process in the UK market. Oh. Uh, what I'm doing in, in the US is kind of different because, you know, there we were post-product market fit, although we didn't realize it at the time. 
Uh, but here we're more pre-product market fit. And so there is a much more uh, wearing multiple caps that I'm doing at the moment. So building Can the sales process. Can you explain those two terms for me, please? Sorry to cut across you. Just you sure. said post-market fit and pre-market fit. And I don't fully yeah. understand that. So uh, so product market fit being the, that kind of moment where you've built a product that the market wants and you can feel that there's traction. The, the, you, you kind of go from that switch of I'm trying to push this product on the market that nobody really wants mm. to the market is pulling the product out Got of it. you. Uh, and that's kind of you, you don't is a, a key pivotal moment where you don't want to invest in growth unless you've got that product market fit uh, because you're effectively just going to be burning cash trying to sell something. It's easy to sell a dollar for 50 cents, uh, but it's it's not easy to sell a dollar for $1.50. Um, and effectively, you know, when you are post product market, fit, so you basically tested it you've got repeatable sales there's good customer uh, you you can acquire customers and you retain customers and they have good usage and satisfaction on your product that's when you can invest more in in growth so the goals are different pre-product market fit yeah so so what you're saying is post-market feels like demand fulfillment that there's there's an understanding of what it is yes Uh, the problem is well identified and therefore it's it's easy to comprehend yeah, and there's this, there's this, there's not kind of a black and white moment or a zero to one where there there wasn't and now there is. It it, it adapts and changes because the market grows, your competitors change, the offerings in the market, demands of the market change. So that kind of product market fit always kind of you know fluctuates, and you kind of need to keep nurturing it. But there's definitely a pivotal moment where something kind of just clicks, and that's when you're you know really in the early stages of your company. I mean, this product market fit stage is normally around the seed or Series A stage of a startup. Um, and you know you're not going to get significant investment in growth until you've mm. got that until you've got that moment. Yeah. So what challenge then in that process have you come up against that you weren't expecting? Um, so one that I wasn't. Um, so the biggest challenge in getting to a product market fit is that you have to iterate and you have to you don't spend six months building a product release it and then kind of hope it works and cross your fingers it's really oh. you kind of ship you test in the market you see how it sells how it how people react to it does it do close when you do close are they using it and then you make tweaks and it's kind of this iterative process so it's not kind of you know one slog of work and then a step function up it's really kind of continual so that was kind of expected to be fair the, the biggest thing i found uh the unexpected challenge is actually more internal resource uh, management and allocation. So where I'm in the US market for Spendesk, we are now a Series C company. So we recently raised $120 million. Uh, We've grown from 20 employees back when I joined a few years ago to over 300. Uh, We were just had one office in France and we're now in Germany, France, UK and San Francisco. Um, So there's a lot of kind of competing resources uh, and challenges and you've got to focus in a strategic level in the company on which market and so where I I didn't really expect uh, to the biggest part of my job is actually kind of fighting internally to have certain resources allocated to the things we're working on it's less about needing to know what to do and it's actually about having the resources and the people and the alignment um, internally to get what you need to get done done <laughs> and that's um i didn't think i'd spent as much of my time doing that um but that's kind of the nature of um you know the strategic nature of asset allocation within in a company that people don't really talk about too much 
Yeah, I think, and I think that's a huge challenge always, is the biggest sell is always internal. When you're trying to make that external sale is, is aligning and bringing people with you and influencing people to maybe reassign their own priorities, um, as always, because I think we, it's, it's, it's easier to be, get frustrated and impatient internally than it is. We will often have far more patience, I think, with prospects and we'll nurture them along, but internally we, it's, it's, it's a harder job because I think maybe our expectations are different. We don't, really? I don't think we tend to, by default anyway, see internal stakeholders like customers um, because there's this kind of, you know, maybe underlying assumption that you know, everyone's working in the same company, therefore you should kind of be aligned with what I'm doing. Um, and I think that, you know, this, in a very small company, maybe that's true, but the, as soon as you get into siloed teams and have, you know, heads of departments, everyone has their own uh, objectives and goals, uh, and you really have to manage competing goals and incentives. Um, and that is a critical part of, of, of that. And so you, they, people do become internal customers um, that you have to work and collaborate with. And, and in a very similar way to a sales process, if you can manage a sales process, you've got the skill set, just apply it in, you know, internally and uh, you know, things will be a bit easier. Mm. Well, what would you say then was a skill that you needed to develop to grow into this? One skill that you most needed, I guess, to develop to grow into this role you're in at the moment? I think going back to that resource question is, is really having the awareness that my, my objective is not the only one and it's not necessarily the most important to the company and mm -hmm. really having to understand where do I fit in and where does the, the responsibilities that I look after and the team, what we're doing, how does that fit into the overall strategic goals of the company? I think when, if you really want to do well in those sorts of positions, you have to see yourself as a co-founder um, and put yourself in that person's shoes and think how they would think so that you can be empathetic towards those decisions maybe you don't get budget for a certain thing maybe this project gets completely deprioritized which is super important to you but in the grand schemes of the company and I, I again being someone who's personally individually extremely competitive and I always grew up with this kind of I want to be the best at what I'm doing you know my especially as an individual contributor you're kind of given a quota and your kind of mindset gets tunnel vision into well as long as I hit my quota then I'm you know a good I'm a good rep um, and that is can be fatal because it's not about you it's not about that individual it's really about the contribution to the company and where does the company go overall and if you you can have really strong traits like that where actually they become negative in career progression because you're seen as really only focusing on your scope without the appreciation of how that impacts other people and other teams so i think the skill was really going again from the ic to more like the management position is appreciation of other incentives other goals uh, and how do you be a, a team player and, and get the company moving in the right direction rather than just trying to row your own ore faster yeah no, oh, makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, you talked there a couple of times actually in our conversation today about competitiveness, and I was curious to know when you talk about that, are you more competitive with yourself or with others? <laughs> that's interesting. Um, that's a really that's a really interesting that's an interesting question, and I'd have to reflect on that maybe more to mm. give you like an accurate answer. But if I was to look back 
historically at maybe my tendencies in like personal hobbies, for example. Um, I am not someone who cares about 100% perfection. Whenever I kind of take up a, a, a hobby, I kind of want to get to that 18, 90% like rate where I'm like, I've proven to myself that I can get pretty damn good at this, but do I care about being the best in the world? No. Um, so there's a lot of things that I've kind of done that with, whether it be playing guitar or doing martial arts or whatever it may be. There's, there's many different things. It changes all the time. But definitely, yes, I, I am competitive uh, with other people if it's in the, in the realm of that is a, a gauge of how good you're doing. But I, yeah. I don't, I don't, there's a difference. Like, for example, I, I don't get annoyed when other people are doing well. I think it's not a zero sum game. And I think there's, um, I get pleasure from my friends who are also doing really well in their career. So although I'm competitive and then like, it's more competitive that that opens up the realization of what's possible. Mm. And I'm like, it makes me be self-aware of like, oh, am I doing enough? Yeah. Am I yeah. actually performing at the best that I should be? And that kind of makes me competitive. So in that sense, yes, but it's not in the, oh, I should be better than that person. Uh, the, why am I not being as good as, you know, you know mm. Bill, Bob or Jane? Um, mm. So I don't I think know. You've it's a tough the one. I, I, I <laughs> think you've answered the question. I think you've answered the question. I, th I think you're more competitive with yourself. Uh, and, and another way to look at it, I was, as you were talking, I was saying, which motivates you more, your own, I don't want to call them failures, but the, the, the gaps, the things yeah. that you're not quite satisfied with, or other people's successes, sometimes that will motivate you. And what you're saying is, no, you're happy, people succeed, that's a great thing. Yeah. That's, not, that's not lighting a fire under you. No. What's lighting a fire under you, you said, is where you perceive that I could do better. Yeah, that's true. If someone tells, tells me yeah. I can't do something, that's probably the biggest yeah. motivator because I'm like, yes, <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> I know that feeling. I know that feeling. I remember one <laughs> back 2007, February, early February, my wife and I and her sister and her, her husband were out in a restaurant and we were talking about New Year's resolutions and how fast they pass. Yeah. And um, we were, my brother-in-law had trained for the marathon twice at this stage and had gotten very close to the final but through injury had to pull out so this was his year and my wife said to me um you know why don't you do the marathon this year you know go train with mark, mark you're always talking about doing these things now you have to understand i always hated running hated it with a passion and uh i said nah you must be joking i hate running she said to me yeah you're probably too old anyway <laughs> I'm not kidding you. That October, Dublin, 31st of October, I completed the Dublin City Marathon. There is no greater motivation. <laughs> it's absolutely hilarious um, that you're telling this story because I, I'm actually, I'm not the full marathon, but I'm training for a half marathon and I absolutely hate running as well. But the only yeah. reason I'm doing it, so my wife, uh, who has asthma, she decided to run a half marathon uh, back when we were living in Paris and, and on three weeks uh, notice. <laughs> and I was like, that's pretty, that's pretty ballsy. Um, and she absolutely smashed it. Um, and she's not a runner. She doesn't run by like nature. She just kind of picked a goal and was like, let's do it in three weeks and has, has asthma. And again, to that point, that kind of opened my eyes. I was like, well, if you could do that three weeks of asthma, then I should definitely be able to do that. So I have to sign up and do one. <laughs> oh, you're, have you started training for it yet? Yeah, yeah it's, um, I'm doing the half marathon in Lake Tahoe uh, on the 31st of October. So Ooh. it's in uh, two, two weeks time. Oh, wow. And have you in training? Because I was always reticent about do, doing the 13 miles in training because I felt it would take away from some of the satisfaction on the day. I, I, have you experienced that or have you done the 13 miles yet? 
So I'm, I'm, I'm fighting against my inner need to run the 13 miles because I really just want to, uh, to yeah. kind of just be like, okay, you will be able to do it on the day, but everywhere, uh, you know, all the, all the stuff that I've looked at anyway, tells you that you shouldn't run more than, really than 10 miles in, in training. So I've right. kind of tried to stick to that. And I, I got up to about mm. 17, 17, 18 kilometers. I think it's 21 mm. kilometers in total. So you do know now that this is the gateway drug to running a full marathon. Because once you've done a half marathon, you're only four long runs away from a marathon. Yes. You think about it, you've done 13, 15, 17, 20. Once you've done 20, that's it. You can enter a marathon. So yeah, you're you're not that far away. There's a lot of pain between now and a marathon. It is. (laughs) But not a lot of effort. I mean, tell me how was your experience with that, you know, that, um, that kind of training side? Because I think there's a big part of that again, going back to like the mental health side of things, I think like marathon running is really interesting that my, my going back to that, my martial arts is my, is my kind of sport. That's what I'm really interested in, which is mm. often a lot more kind of like intense, uh, mm. it's high intensity rather than more marathon training. Um, but the marathon training is interesting because it's less about what your body can actually do. And it really is about the mental inner talk that you, you, you say to yourself and uh, you go through one, you know, the first five you know, kilometers can kind of suck and then the next five kilometers can be okay. And you go in these waves. I found that the most interesting part because it's kind of, um, it is almost shining like a magnifying glass on the kind of mental states that you go through on like a day to day basis. And when you kind of push yourself into the struggle or you chase the struggle, the struggle kind of stops chasing you, yeah. I think. And it, yeah. how, how, how have you found that? Does that yeah, resonate I, with you? I fully agree. I think you become a past master at tricking your mind um, and, and self-talk for, for give you a couple of examples. One was uh, there's a race course a mile away from where I live and there's a track that goes around it like an ambulance track so it's it's nice it's a lovely run because it's in off the road it's two and a half kilometers around and I used to when I started out when I got to where I could do three circuits um so two circuits is five and a half so seven and a half kilometers nearly it's nearly five miles the the total but I had this thing where I go uh two for the legs one for the head meaning the first two laps were, were for the legs and then your legs would be tired. And then the last one was the, the training, the mental toughness, because you didn't want to do it, you were tired. And then there was another circuit I had around the village where I live, where you come to a T-junction. And if you turn left, it's, it's like maybe a five-kilometer circuit. If you turn right, it's like an eight-kilometer circuit. And I would have this thing, am I turning left or right? And I would never make the decision before I went out. That's the mind trick, I would say, just going for a short run. Mm. But by the time I got to the T-junction, I was well warmed up. And then I would always take great satisfaction of saying, am I turning left or turning right? And it was always turning right at, at that junction. And little tricks like, okay, I'm not going for a run. I'm just going to get changed into my gear was another one as well. Because once you actually got off your ass off the couch and got changed into your gear, then it was just like night follows day. It was like, okay, now I'll go out. And, and you're right, the first 5K sucks. Uh, but once you get to the 10K, I found, you know, the endorphins kick in and, it's just like some of the greatest highs I've ever had mm. have, have been when you get to that stage. And the, what it does to your head, once you, once, once you go past the, the point where you're thinking, I'm going to give up, and you don't, some, that's a, that, that, that builds, I think, your self-confidence. There's no question about it. And it builds how you, how you think about yourself. And then there's times where 
I, I used to go running with my brother-in-law, Mark. We, we did train and he was good because he had been to the 20 mile mark and he is a kind of a natural runner's build. And so he was always, and he's, he's seven years younger than me as well. And I was 41, I think at the time. And uh, so he would be very good. He kind of, kind of weighed up for me and, and encouraged me along. And I remember a couple of trips we went on where I was ready to give up and he, no, we keep going, we keep going. And it was only because I didn't want to give up on him and let him down. So we, that's another trap that, that sometimes we'll give up on ourselves before we'll give up on somebody else because we don't want to let her, you know, we'll lie to ourselves, but there's, 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 you can't lie to somebody else in that situation. And I always remember there was a time, we were at the 14 mile training mark and uh, we'd done 14 miles one weekend <laughs> and it was from my house to his house, just 14 miles, so it was perfect. So uh, we ran that way. That and then the following cool. week said, we said we were going to do a 16 mile. So we did a two mile circuit around his house and then back to mine. Uh, mine to his felt like it was uphill the whole way. So I thought this will be great, it'll be downhill the whole way back. No, no, it felt like the earth had tilted on its axis in that week and that it was all uphill the way back as well the following week, which kind of led me to think about what do we pay attention to? What do we notice? So we, we, on the way to his house, I only noticed the hills I was running up. And they're not great hills. They're just like, inclines for maybe half a kilometer, but they're hard on the legs and they're hard on the head. But you only notice those. You don't notice then the down, the, the, the decline. And so the following week, again, same thing. I was only noticing the difficult bits. And, and that taught me something as well about it's just life, is that we also need to pay attention and enjoy the, the declines because joy only comes true, true contentment, true sense of achievement only comes when you've pushed past your own personal barriers, when you want to give up and you keep going. That's, 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 that's the moment where you experience just joy like you can't believe. I couldn't agree anymore. Couldn't agree anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about the martial arts. I'm really curious about that. You said it's mixed martial arts. Usually people, when they start out, my experience is they start out with one particular style and then fall into mixed. Is that yeah. yours? And if so, what? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so I've done a few over, over the course of my life. So when I was six years old, I started in jujitsu, uh, just kind of like traditional jujitsu. Uh, I then tore a muscle on my back not long after doing that. And then I actually went into uh, karate, Shotokan karate to be specific. Mm. Uh, got to, so <laughs> I got to brown belt and two white stripes. This is the one just before black Ooh, belt. That's <laughs> and, that's like getting to the 20 mile mark in the marathon and, and uh, not going the distance. That is I know, so but I, I, was yeah. mainly, I was mainly doing the karate because my dad was really into it and we used to go together. Mm. And I remember I was on like a purple belt and you know he he basically <laughs> bribed me with like 10 pounds to uh do my brown belt you know uh like the certification or whatever because i really just didn't i didn't really care but he was like you regret it if you don't do it whatever and anyway, i got to that point um and i did that for a number of years uh and then yeah i just kind of got into uh muay thai muay thai was my really kind of main sport um yeah. I, I just thought it was i think the difference between shotokan karate and muay thai you know muay thai was more uh realistic it was more like you know yeah. real, real the legs off somebody else exactly 
<laughs> exactly. Uh, and, and I went to Thailand and, and kind of saw a lot of Ooh. Muay Thai outside there. And uh, I just, you know, just loved it. So really got into that. Yeah. And I think through that, uh, got more into the mixed martial arts. And, you know, I, I've been watching the UFC since I was about 15 years old, you know, back in the day before it wasn't as, uh, as mainstream as it is now. Um, but it's absolutely fantastic that it is. But I'm still even surprised there's still so many people that, you know, it's, it's a rare occasion that I find someone that's really actually into it, um, just kind of like in passing. And uh, you know, move, I moved to the States a year and a half ago, and I'm uh, trying to catch up with my uh, you know, American sports uh, you know, analogies, but I, I have a tough time. <laughs> yeah, my, my son is huge into it. Um, he'll like stay up till three o'clock in the morning to watch a fight. Uh, wow. Crazy stuff. I, I wonder, it hasn't really reached this. I say that, and of course, Conor McGregor, was was number one there for a while mm. but it really hasn't taken on this part of the world and i just wonder is it to do with the fact that it is america american centric and like the big fights are on at vegas at three o'clock in the morning yeah it's interesting because the underground seas in for example like the muay thai scene in europe is much better than it is in uh in america which is quite interesting mm. america's scene is more like wrestling based so i'm not i'm not too sure but they, they definitely are better at the promotion there's something actually that might be relevant to like this podcast um and like you know going back to the kind of career side of things talking about this sport and you mentioned conor mcgregor so he's obviously the the, the most famous uh mixed martial artist um also the most highly paid but interesting fact about him he's the number one highest paid but he's you know ranking and the pound for pound rankings i think was down to like number 15 probably even lower um whereas the 15 ranked um uh highly paid athlete is the number one pound for pound fighter in the world so what mm -hmm. is the difference between those two people why is the best person in the world not the highest paid um and, so, and i wrote an article about this and effect it's what i call the trident skill set so the the amount of time effort uh, it takes to get to that top one percent is insane uh, to be the mm. michael jordan of basketball or the conor mcgregor of uh, like you know not the conor mcgregor because he's actually not the greatest fighter but the, say the john jones of the usc is insanely difficult and it's basically you know near impossible mm. however um, what Conor McGregor has done is he's taken the Trident skill set approach. He said, in instead of trying to be the top 1% of one thing, I'm going to be the top, let's say, in the top you know, 80th percentile uh, of three different things. So he's a pretty good fighter. He's one of the best, but he's not the best by a long shot. Uh, he's a great promoter. He's probably not the best promoter in the world, but he is a pretty damn good one. And he's mm -hmm. also quite a smart businessman. And he's definitely mm. not the best business or entrepreneur in the world, but he he's business uh, minded and definitely a lot more than most of the other UFC fighters. When you mix them together, he's got his whiskey business, he promotes his fights and is the best well paid and he's, you know, pretty damn good, good enough at fighting to, to be interesting to, to people to watch. And yeah. if you're in the top 10% or in the top 20% of people in three unique different skill set, you will be effectively in the top 1% because it's so rare to have those skill sets together. And whenever you're in your career, I think this is super in, uh, interesting in the early days of like, what do I do in my career? Let's say you're a salesperson, like a sales skill set is actually something which I think is really hard to get good at because it requires mastery of yourself. It requires mastery of other people to be very self-aware, to be able to articulate and frame things. And so it's quite a hard skill actually. Um, <laughs> but if you are good at that, and then you have other skill sets which are not normally uh, combined together, 
that's a recipe for a really kind of unique and powerful career that only you would be able to achieve. So that's it. Going back to what I said earlier, I kind of I like to get into the 90% mastership of something, but I, I have no interest in being the best guitarist in the world. But if you can be pretty damn good at a couple of things, yeah. you can shape yeah. a really interesting career for yourself that only you yeah. can do. No, that's really, really interesting. I, I think McGregor's genius, and I never thought I'd put that into the same sentence with McGregor, <laughs> but I, you have to hand it to him, is he understood that people are not there for the fight, they're there for the show. Yes. And he puts on the show. He's understood, he understands what his customers really, really want. And I don't know that many people give enough thought to that as to why are they really coming. Sometimes people don't know that themselves. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, a um, couple of very quick questions. I'm conscious of time, uh, sure. Alfie. Um, with all of this that we're talking about in terms of business and personal mastery, et cetera, is if you were minister for education and you could change the curriculum and add one subject to the school curriculum that was mandatory, what would it be and why? Oh, that's tough to say. What would I do as a, as a subject? I know how I would try and change the education system, which is uh, more, uh, more a focus on actually learning by doing something uh, than necessarily studying something. Um, I think just go out and create a side hustle. Go create this. Create a website. Uh, try and sell something just try and sell your first pound dollar euro whatever currency you're in mm. just sell the first thing and that process it does not matter if it's successful it doesn't matter if it works but building a website understanding the customer trying something failing seeing the application of something in real life you will learn so much and not only will you learn so much but it will be super motivating because that first thing that you earn off your kind of your own back it just opens up the world I think that really opens up you know opportunities so I, I would say get yeah. out of the classroom and get out into the real world and just create something. Cool. I like that. I like that. Change the system. And yeah. Final question. When your time on this planet is done, how would you like to be remembered? Wow. <clears throat> I, would like to, I would like to have a, a, an impact on the world that's bigger than myself. Okay. I think, do I let you off the hook with that one? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to. What does that mean? I think that you can take a life that you can be very successful and live a great life for yourself. But I think it's much more meaningful to take your skills and transcend yourself and apply that to helping other people in a bigger scale i think one thing that it's just a personal belief that i i feel i'd feel unsatisfied if i wasn't able to leverage my unique skills or capabilities to help people in a wider uh, a way uh, you know i think the the what that would materialize into by the end of my life i don't know but i think mm. i have a feeling it's going to be through entrepreneurship and through business um, and I'd like to have an impact that, you know, doesn't just give me a good life, but helps many other people outside of myself. I think we all have a responsibility to use our, you know, our capabilities to do something, you know, more than just ourselves and do that for other people cool. in, in what way that shapes out to be. I don't know yet, but that's how I'd like to be remembered. I'll take that. Listen, we're up against the time. Unfortunately, I could talk to you all day. Alfie Marsh, thank you so much for being my guest today on the Leadership Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me.